It's September 1720. Somewhere in Caribbean waters, off of the island of Jamaica. The captain of a small fishing boat spots a large vessel in the distance flying an upside-down British flag, the maritime signal of distress. Scanning the ship through his eyeglass, the fishing captain sees crewmen on deck waving. It's getting late and it'll be night soon. The chances of another vessel coming to their assistance will be slim. So the fishing boat sets a course for the stranded ship. Closing in, the captain notices the sailors aboard the idle vessel are rugged and unkempt. A jolt of fear surges through him. He tells the helmsman to pull back. But it's too late. Before they can react, the upside-down ensign is swapped out for another, far more distressing symbol. A black flag with a skull and crossed cutlasses. The flag of Calico Jack Rackham. The fishing boat turns hard to port, in the hopes that the wind will speed them away. The pirates shoot muskets at the fishermen. Bullets rip through their sails, but it's not enough to do major damage. Yet, as hard as the little ship tries, it's not making any headway. The pirates are faster. They swiftly gain. The continuing barrage of musket fire shreds the fishing boat's sails. Outrunning them is impossible. The pirates come alongside, accompanied by the sickening sound of grappling hooks latching onto the wooden handrails. Chaos is about to be unleashed. The terrified fishermen are paralyzed by fear, dumbfounded by what they see. The snarling pirates pouring onto their ship are led by a pair of she-devils. They brandish cutlasses and pistols. They're wearing men's clothing and are fiercer than their male counterparts. But their flapping shirts expose their breasts. There can be no doubt these are two women. It's unheard of. Their presence adds to the panic and confusion of their victims. These female pirates are Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. They are fearless and ruthless. The sailors cower before them as they raid pockets and compartments, cursing and manhandling anyone in their way. Mary Reed cracks one of the sailors over the head with her pistol. And Bonnie throws a man to the floor and smashes her boot into his gut. Captain Rackham orders the fishing boat to be raided of all goods and supplies. This attack is typical of Rackham, Bonnie and Reed. Tactically savvy, they use the art of deception, luring their victims to their doom. But in the ever-evolving pirate landscape, aware of it or not, Bonnie and Reed are in the endgame of piracy in the Caribbean. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, 
Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Aboard the Revenge, it's a new life for Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Just weeks ago in Nassau, Anne was stuck in a loveless marriage with James Bonny. Now, she's run off with her lover, Jack Rackham, to become a pirate. Mary Reed, a former British soldier turned pirate, was wandering Nassau looking for a new commission before she joined Rackham and Anne Bonny. It is a remarkable stroke of coincidence that Bonnie and Reed have managed to end up as part of the same crew. So how did these women acquire the ruthless skills needed to be such brutal cutthroats? Their stories are almost too wild to be true. But Charles Johnson's account claims that some may be tempted to think the whole story no better than a novel or romance. But since it is supported by many thousand witnesses, the truth of it can be no more contested. He has us believe Mary Reed gains her skills in the military, disguised as a man. But Bonnie grew up on a plantation, so Johnson says. She isn't a fighter. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of fighters they were. We have no idea what skills they exhibited. So it's virtually impossible to speculate on where they might have learned whatever skills they actually used. It wouldn't have been common for women to have been trained in swordsmanship. Uh, but then again, a lot of the men on pirate ships may not have been particularly great swordsmen. They may have picked it up as on-the-job training, and we don't know how long Anne Bonny and Mary Reed were with Jack Rackham. So if they had been on a number of voyages, they could have learned some of their skills as, in effect, uh, apprentices, watching their fellow pirates use them. While it's uncertain how and where Bonny and Reed gained their skills, 
both relish in their newfound freedom as pirates. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. In the 17th and 18th centuries, social expectations for women were very strict. Their opportunities were almost non-existent. Women from Anne and Mary's background would have had two options, or maybe three options. One, get married. Two, go into domestic service. Or if all else fails and they run very down on their luck into prostitution. They also would have no control over themselves. They won't really have any property. They won't really have money for themselves. They won't have freedom, basically. And piracy offered a way out of this. They're both welcomed onto this pirate ship. And here they're being treated pretty equally amongst the other members of the crew. As pirates, they're going to be getting their own equal share of the money. They're allowed to fight. They're swearing. They're being brutal. They're firing weapons. They're brandishing their cutlasses. They would never be able to have this sort of freedom or excitement in any other place. So even though a pirate ship was very, very dangerous and generally for the most part, it was almost impossible for women to be on pirate ships, they were able to kind of really take this and make a life for themselves on their own in a world where they really wouldn't be able to do this otherwise. To their victims, it comes as a terrifying surprise seeing two cross-dressing women wielding cutlasses and pistols and speaking as foul-mouthed as any black soul pirate. But it goes beyond gender subversion. Sailors are known for their superstitions. These women must appear as mythic sirens, come to drag them beneath the depths. Seeing two women come at you on a pirate ship is not going to be something you're ever going to expect or prepare for. Sailors always had a lot of superstitions when it came to women and sailing. And this goes back practically to the ancient world with old tales of female-based sea creatures or feminine entity destroying something at sea or sailors. The most common of which the people are familiar are mermaids and sirens. Mermaids and sirens were both female mythical figures that were said to seduce sailors, either through song or through their looks, and then capture them, hypnotize them, and then drown them and take them to the bottom of the sea. So now that they're seeing two female pirates coming at them, one, the idea of two women being able to fight on a ship is seen as practically abhorrent because they're letting women into a male space when they feel like it shouldn't because it might bring about some of this bad luck on ships that people thought there might be. Or it could be that they're almost seeing a spectral vision of, oh my God, the mermaid or the siren is actually here, actually attacking me. Perhaps it seems really unreal. And so all of this is just going to immediately frighten and terrorize people into submission. Contrary to the eyewitnesses, Charles Johnson's A General History of Pirates claims Bonnie and Reed are predominantly disguised as men, even fooling their fellow pirates. This appears to be entirely fabricated. In fact, Governor Woods Rogers' September 5th proclamation names both women directly, stating, Two women by name Anne Fulford, alias Bonnie, and Mary Reed did on the 22nd of August last combine together to enter on board take, steal, and run away. It seems clear they do not hide their gender. Only in times of battle, and likely for practical reasons, 
do Bonnie and Reed dress in men's clothing? Aboard the Revenge, they appear to live openly as women, a reality Johnson shies away from, but one contemporary scholarship does not. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. I think that's potentially more subversive than the standard narrative that they were masquerading as men, right? In some regards. And maybe as a way to seize back the gaze of the Johnsonian narrative, which fixates on this cross-dressing as evidence of their sort of aberrant social behavior. One way to perhaps reclaim Reed and Bonnie is to actually acknowledge that they combined femininity with pirating in an open way, right? That they did not necessarily accept and adopt the trappings of masculinity when they went to sea. Still, Bonnie and Reed's presence aboard the pirate ship is far from usual. The pirate codes are clear. One such code, most famously by Captain Bartholomew Roberts, aka Black Bart, states, no boy or woman to be allowed amongst them. If any man were found seducing any of the latter sex and carried her to sea, disguised, he was to suffer death. For a pirate captain, worry over jealous feuds among the male crew is an obvious reason for excluding women. But for the women themselves, there are other indisputable dangers of life at sea. It's risky for two women to be a pirate on a ship uh, sailing around a really active place in the Caribbean. It wouldn't be super risky for them to be on Jack Rackham's ship because they were clearly welcome there. But what happens if they come across another ship where they get captured? This is where their lives could very much go into danger because women in a lot of places generally were not allowed on ships. So if they were kidnapped, they would have heavy ransom put on them. They would have been very confined perhaps to the hold. And then one or two things would happen they would be lucky enough to get a certain amount of protection from the captain to make sure that they were not attacked, or they would have been used basically as fair game for the male soldiers and forced them into prostituting themselves. So there's the very, very high likelihood that they could get beaten, they could get injured, or that they could get raped. While this new life is a freedom unlike anything Bonnie and Reed can have ashore, Rackham has yet to lead his crew to major success. His attacks are small, reaping little rewards. A lot of the ships that they were capturing were smaller fishing boats, and they seemed like they would be extremely unsuccessful attacks, but these small ships could still have their uses. They would get lots of supplies such as fishing nets and tackle and food supplies, and a lot of supplies they could use to repair their ships, so they were able to keep their ship in better condition thanks to it. And there were also lots of these types of ships, so that way they could continuously steal and get food, so that way Jack Rackham isn't going to have to have them land to try to get resources elsewhere. They could actually disguise themselves as other fishermen, so they could go in and rob other fishing ships much quicker. But Rackham isn't just deceiving fishing boats. After several raids around Hispaniola, he sails into one of the French ports, masquerading as a trader. He sells the looted fishing equipment for food and other goods. But he also sees an opportunity to grow the crew. Luring traders onto the revenge with the promise of booze, Rackham press gangs the unsuspecting men into joining his crew. With new recruits, Bonnie and Reed want Rackham to go after bigger scores. 
with fewer pirates about, the Bahamas and Caribbean are theirs for the taking. But Rackham refuses. Governor Rogers' proclamation means the large merchant ships will be warned of their presence and will be heavily armed. Plus, the British Navy and pirate hunters make these waters more and more dangerous for pirates like them. To avoid capture, they must lie low, taking what they can from small captures, at least for the time being. Rackham orders the revenge with its fresh batch of press-ganged sailors to head to Jamaica, far from the jurisdiction of Governor Rogers' proclamation. But there's still the risk of encountering Navy warships. So why is Jack Rackham taking the risk? Well, Jamaica was a very lucrative colony that can't be denied. By 1719, exports annually were up to almost 250,000 pounds of 18th century currency. So there's a lot of wealth going in and out of the Caribbean. Now, with fewer pirates, so Jack Rackham is kind of weighing his options here. We go to Jamaica where we won't have nearly as much competition, the wealthiest island in the Caribbean, but we're just going to have to make sure that we're not going after massive, massive merchant ships because we won't be able to, but because of a high population, we will have lots of smaller ships that will be available to us. So these are the risks that he's weighing. And clearly he decides that the benefits outweigh the risks as he's going towards Jamaica. It's the end of September, 1720. Aboard the Revenge, Bonnie and Reed discuss with Rackham their next series of attacks. But Bonnie notices that something, or someone, has Reed distracted. Following Reed's eyeline, she grins. Reed is spying on one of the recently press-ganged men working on deck. He's handsome. Johnson writes, Mary Reed became so smitten with his person and address that she could neither rest, night or day. There are no surviving records to tell us this man's name, nor what ship he came from, but we are told he has no interest in being a pirate. Perhaps this is part of Reed's attraction. After all, she did not seek out a life of piracy. She was once press-ganged herself before committing to the cause. Over the coming days, Reed shares moments with this man. Knowing his reluctance to be a pirate, they connect, as Johnson says, by talking against the life of a pirate, which he was altogether averse to. It doesn't take long for the two to become inseparable. They have fallen in love. Rackham's revenge is becoming one of the most unusual pirate ships to ever sail the Caribbean. It's early October, 1720. The Revenge is anchored off a small island in the Caribbean. Aboard the ship, tempers flare. In the mess hall, Reed's lover quarrels with another pirate who accuses him of taking more than his fair share of food. Reed's lover denies it, 
the pirate challenges his honor, calling him a lying dog. In the close confines below deck, the temperature rises. Sailors crowd together, sensing a fight is about to break out. Rackham charges into the mess. The two crew members are being held back from attacking one another. Rackham orders they settle the dispute in a civilized manner. The men agree. They challenge each other to a duel on shore. Reed is mortified by this. Johnson writes that she feared more for his life than she did for her own. She knows her lover's skills aren't as sharp as his challenger's. Reed takes the matter into her own hands. She finds her lover's opponent and secretly challenges him to a separate duel to be held two hours before her lover's. It's agreed and they depart the ship. On shore, Reed faces off with her lover's opponent. Pistols are loaded. Cutlasses are at their sides. They turn and walk ten paces. Taking her position, Mary Reed steadies her breathing and grounds the heel of her boot in the sand. They raise their firearms. The count begins. One. Two. Three. Neither shot hits its mark. Drawing cutlasses, they charge at each other. Despite her opponent's size and strength, Reed is quick on her feet and with her blade. Her opponent can't keep up as hard as he tries. Knocking his cutlass out of his hand, Reed plunges her blade through his chest, killing him instantly and saving her lover's life. This account from Johnson may well have shocked contemporary readers. The idea of lawless cutthroats abiding by social traditions and rituals of honor seems bizarre, but they do. Dueling is one of the chief methods of conflict resolution at this time. In a situation where they do not have access to the normal institutions of resolution, how would you do this? Like any society, pirates had to resolve conflict. In some ways, I think having the, the duel itself transpire on shore created a certain amount of distance between the ship, which was the site of work, where a certain modicum of working rapport was necessary, and the sort of resolution of grievances. And in some ways, pirates fighting duels became an object of fascination because it was, again, ordinary seamen seizing a prerogative that technically was only the domain of gentlemen. So in some ways, I think the British public was interested in these duels in particular because it seemed like men who ought to have no honor engaged in an affair that was very intimately connected to this concept of honor. It's October 20th, 1720. Rackham has managed a few large scores in the last few weeks. Now, 
he's charged down a canoe, which he mistook for a schooner. Pulling alongside the canoe, Rackham, Bonnie, and Reed are surprised to find a single woman aboard named Dorothy Thomas. Rackham has Dorothy dragged aboard and interrogated, and her canoe is ransacked. Aboard, Dorothy is shocked to see Bonnie and Reed, two women, wearing men's clothes but with hair down and breasts exposed. What to do with Dorothy has created a problem. Rackham wants to let her go. Bonnie and Reed do not. So what's interesting here is Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed both insist to Jack Rackham that they need to kill her. Do not let her go. Do not even hold her hostage. We need to kill her because as a woman, she'll probably get freed at some point and she's someone who will be able to identify us and speak out against us at a trial. Jack Rackham did not listen. Little does Rackham know, his decision to let Dorothy Thomas go will cost him. But the incident quickly drops out of Rackham's mind. Luck, it seems, is finally on their side. After a string of raids, Rackham, Bonnie, and Reed managed to capture a large merchant ship packed with riches, including a large cache of wine. Bonnie and Reed want Rackham to trade it for a profit. Instead, Rackham drops anchor at Negril Point, where, to Bonnie and Reed's frustration, the other pirates go ashore and throw a drunken party. Across the Bahamas and Caribbean, pirate hunters are looking for Rackham, Bonnie, and Reed. In addition to Woods Rogers' proclamation, the governor of Jamaica, Sir Nicholas Laws, has also issued a proclamation calling for their capture. And now, hot on Rackham's tail is pirate hunter Captain Jonathan Barnett. Following leads and eyewitness testimonies from people like Dorothy Thomas and others who encountered Rackham, Captain Barnett believes he knows where Rackham is. Captain Barnett is a force to be reckoned with. Captain Jonathan Barnett was a very experienced and a very hardened seaman. Before he even became a pirate hunter, he worked for the governor of Jamaica, Archibald Hamilton, as a privateer. And so this did give him the knowledge as well as to where a lot of pirates were, what their methods were, what their hideouts were. Similar to Woods Rogers, Barnett had like a personal vendetta against pirates. And he was relentless, he was merciless, and his goal was to get rid of as many pirates as possible. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's the night of October 31st, 1720. Silver starlight bathes the pirate ship anchored off Negril Point. Burning oil lamps spill amber light across the deck and down in the hold, where pirates drunkenly sing songs. On deck, 
Bonnie and Reed are sober and furious at Rackham for squandering the wine that they could have sold. Reed pauses. Bonnie does too. Both spot flickering lights in the distance. It's a ship, and it's coming towards them. They tell Rackham, but he's too drunk to care. They make him care and tell him to get up on deck. The approaching ship is captained by Jonathan Barnett. This is the endgame for the pirates. Barnett orders the suspected pirate vessel to identify its captain. Rackham stumbles on deck. Bonnie has him by the arm. She orders him to sober up and tells him to negotiate with Barnett. The crew is not fit for a battle. Rackham scoffs and shrugs Bonnie off. Drunk on wine and arrogance, Caligo Jack shouts, I am Jack Rackham of Cuba. Barnett's hunch has paid off. He has the wanted pirates. He gives the order to prepare the guns, but gives Rackham one chance to surrender. Bonnie and Reed stare daggers at Rackham. Surrendering is their best chance of survival. Instead, Rackham calls, We will give no quarter. We'll fight you to the death. Drunken pirates flitter about the ship, trying to arm themselves. Miraculously, two swivel guns are loaded. The shot misses Barnett's ship and he immediately retaliates. The revenge takes a direct hit. The blast kills and injures half a dozen pirates. Rackham is stupefied. All courage and bravery drains away. And Bonnie and Mary Reed burst from the armory, shoving guns, blades and bullets into the hands of inebriated pirates. Bonnie boils with rage, seeing Rackham at a standstill amongst the chaos. He's a far cry from the gallant pirate she ran away with just two months ago. Bonnie tells Rackham to give the order to attack. The pirate captain, who once called Charles Vane a coward, now orders his men to hide below deck. The pirates retreat. Mary shouts at the fleeing men, if there's a man among you, you'll come up and fight like the man you are to be. Bonnie and Reed are abandoned. Barnett's men begin to board the revenge. Reed explodes with anger. Aiming her pistols down into the hold, she fires at the deserting crew. She wounds several and kills one. But with Barnett's men boarding, Reed and Bonnie turn their fury on them. They unload their pistols at the boarding party. With bullets spent and no time to reload, they toss their guns aside and draw their cutlasses. They swipe and slash at Barnett's men. The two fight for their lives, for their freedom, and for their crew who has deserted them. But resistance is futile. The fight is over in minutes. Bonnie and Reed are subdued, as are Rackham and the crew. Rackham, Bonnie and Reed's piratical careers are over, and they are taken to St. Jago de la Vega, Jamaica, to be put on trial.
It's November 18th, 1720. Jack Rackham and the rest of the male crew will be hanged later that day. Bonnie and Reed have yet to be tried. Since their capture, they've been kept in dank prison cells, waiting. But right now, Bonnie, as a last request to Rackham, is on her way to visit her pirate husband before his execution. In Jamaica Town Jail, Bonnie sees her lover, forlorn and broken, in a heap on the floor. She has no love left for him. The very sight of him disgusts her. Rackham's desperate eyes meet hers, and tears flood down his face. Sobbing, he begs for Bonnie's forgiveness. The hand of death comes quickly for them all, and he knows he is to blame. Bonnie cannot comfort Rackham. What admiration she had is gone. All she can say to him is this, that she was sorry to see him there, but if he had fought like a man, he need not have hanged like a dog. To her, he's a pirate captain. So he's supposed to be this exemplary leader full of bravery. But then the fact that one, he's actually not that successful as a pirate. And then also that it's thanks to them, they get captured. This shatters pretty much any idea she has of him. And to her, he is obviously no longer respected, but to her, he's not even a man anymore. But does Anne Bonny's verbal castration, as recorded by Johnson, speak of changing attitudes towards pirates in the 1720s? I think we get an insight into the 1720s. The telling of pirates is being reconfigured in ways to remove some of the, the luster that they had accumulated in earlier cycles. For Johnson, in some ways, potentially, he's taken these women and, and turned them into his own mouthpiece to imply that, in fact, pirates are not gallant, are not courageous. In fact, they are cowards who should not be considered necessarily as masculine heroes. It's November 28th, just 10 days after Rackham's hanging. Bonnie and Reed are on trial, and their charges are read. One witness, in particular, is able to testify to their cruelty. Dorothy Thomas, the woman Bonnie and Reed ordered Rackham to kill. In Dorothy's testimony, she says of Bonnie and Reed they wore men's jackets and long trousers and handkerchiefs tied about their heads, and that each of them had a machete and pistol in their hands and cursed and swore at the men to murder the opponent, and they should kill her to prevent her coming against them, and that the reason of her knowing and believing them to be women then was by the largeness of their breasts. They are found guilty of acts of piracy and Bonnie and Reed are sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. But Dorothy's observation of Bonnie and Reed's breast size just might be the ticket to their execution. Bonnie and Reed have one last card to play. They appeal to the court for mercy, not for themselves, but for their unborn babies. They claim they are pregnant. The pair are examined, 
is true. Somehow both are with child. If a woman is sentenced to be executed for a crime, but she's pregnant, the execution will always take place after the birth of the child. Here's the thing, women who were sentenced to execution, for the most part, weren't actually executed. They would languish in jail for a long, unspecified amount of time until either a ransom could be paid or perhaps they could be transported into some sort of labor service overseas. If they were pregnant, there's even less of a chance that they're ever going to be executed. And so Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed knew this and they're using it to their advantage. And sure enough, they are granted a stay of execution. The plan works. So what becomes of Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed after their trial? Unfortunately, Mary Reed is going to die in prison that April, either because of complications of pregnancy or even childbirth, but it's officially recorded that she dies of jail fever, which is typhus that you get from lice. There is no record of Anne Bonny's execution. So this suggests that she never actually paid for her guilty sentence, which was not uncommon for the time. Most women were not actually executed, even if they were sentenced for it. So what happened? The long-standing theory from historians had been that her father managed to get her out of jail, bring her back home, and she lived the rest of her life in South Carolina and died in about the year 1782. However, there's actually been some new evidence to suggest otherwise. See, in January of 2021, a YouTuber named Tyler Rodriguez claimed to have found archival evidence that actually shows what happened to Anne Bonny. He was looking through a lot of registries because in Jamaica, they recorded the deaths. Mary Reed is listed in the St. Catherine Parish Register, um, having died April 28th, 1721. That is listed there. This guy finds a reference to the parish registry of the burials of St. Catherine. Um, and he actually found um, a list of deaths from St. Catherine Parish Register listing an Anne Bonny buried on the 29th of December, 1733. So if this is the actual Anne Bonny, it's possible that she managed to live out the rest of her life, another 13 years in Jamaica. But it's a mystery. We're never actually going to know exactly what happened. In the wake of Rackham's death and Bonnie and Reed's sentences, the sun has set on the golden age of piracy. Jack Rackham's death in 1720 kind of signaled the beginning of the end of the golden age of piracy. Several years before he was a pirate, there were thousands of pirates on the seas, and by 1725, there were only hundreds left. Jack Rackham was also one of the last major veterans of the War of Spanish Succession to be killed for his crimes as a pirate. And so his death is kind of really showing us the ushering in of this new era in the maritime world here. The Royal Navy has really amped up its presence. We've got many more admiralty courts that have been established all throughout the British colonies in the Caribbean and in North America, which has increased Britain's power in the maritime world and also against piracy. History tells us Rackham failed to live up to his potential or reach the heights of Charles Vane and Black Sam Bellamy. His place in pirate history seems to be in the shadow of others, with Anne Bonny and Mary Reed casting the largest shadow of all. 
their story, their actions, their unusual place in history here is really going to solidify them into pop culture. And as a result, Anne, Bonnie and Mary Reed are still two of the most well-known pirates in history, despite the fact that they were only pirates for actually two months. And a lot of this really starts thanks to the publication of the book of general history of the pirates. Newspapers such as the American Weekly Mercury um, also includes quotes such as, with the remarkable actions and adventures of the two female pirates, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, their story is really being kind of used as this pop culture fodder. We have the film Cutthroat Island starring Gina Davis, who is supposed to be modeled off of Anne Bonny. Of course, you have Elizabeth Swan in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, probably the most famous fictionalized female pirate who is definitely based off these two women. Despite the fact that Anne Bonny and Mary Reed only had a two month long career as pirates, they have become some of the most infamous pirates ever to have lived. Rackham, Bonny and Reed are perhaps the last great names to emerge from the pirate haven on Nassau. By 1720, the landscape is changed forever. Pirates are being hunted by both the crown and the colonies. The renewed war with Spain, the king's pardon, and the lack of local support means those who wish to go on pirating will need to find new waters, which is exactly what they do next. As the months go by, more and more pirate ships slip silently away. With the sun setting on the Caribbean, they sail east, across the Atlantic, heading for the horizon. Tales of Asian riches are legendary. The gold of Arabia, silks of China and rubies of India all live large in the minds of craven men. Men who are still determined to live the merry life under the black flag. Next week on Real Pirates. To understand where the golden age of piracy will end, we first need to go back in time to see where it began. Next, we will explore the legends of the infamous Red Sea Men. Men like Captain William Kidd, the pirate heroes that spring out of the 1600s will provide the inspiration and the example for the future generations to follow. And follow them they will, around the Cape and towards the East Indies, and to the original pirate kingdom, Madagascar. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Bexon, written by Luke Coons, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Matthias Torres Sole and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley, 